Hi, I'm Lisa Weaver. Welcome to Healing Jephthah's Daughters, the podcast. This week's episode is going to be a little different. First, you will hear more of my conversation with the women from my sister circle, Reverend Adrian Thorne, Reverend Dion Boissier, and Reverend Dr. P. Kimberly Jordan. Today, each of us shares a bit more about our fathers, what we know, what we experienced as children, and how we understand those experiences now as adults. We reflect and interrogate our histories and each other. Then, in the second half of the episode, we turn our attention towards Jephthah. I'll share more about that portion of the episode after you hear the rest of my conversation with Adrian, Dion, and Kim. Let's listen in. Okay, so Lisa, your face is about to blow up, right? And we can we can see it and we can feel like feel it. I'm a salty heifer. I'm just a mad heifer <laughs> right about now. But so so let me ask you then this question. Don't be asking me no questions. This is my show. I know. I know. Don't ask me no questions. Tell me why. Why are you mad? Why are you mad? Tell me why are you mad. I'm so grateful for y'all. No, answer the question. I've come to have what I will call a compassionate understanding of Jephthah. Jephthah learned that children are expendable because his father didn't defend him, right? So he is a product of that. But the dissonance is I can understand now, Jephthah. I can understand now my father. Okay, this makes perfect sense, right? But but you have to work through, okay, now that I understand it intellectually, I got to deal with the hurt and the trauma and the wounds of this guy not showing up. And so Adrian, when you talk about the complexity of parenting, like they do this and they intend this, but they want to do something else. I don't know if you're challenging me to have more compassion for Jephthah or my father, to be quite frank. I don't think anybody's challenged you to do a thing. Well, no, Adrian's taking a head. Yeah. And I'm going, no, ma'am, not today. That's cute. I'll take that into my spiritual director. But it is a challenge. It is a challenge. That's why you picked this text, right? No, the text picked me. But why did the text pick you? It's not neutral. I'd be watching Animaniacs, girl. I wouldn't be reading this stuff. <laughs> Look, the text picked you for a reason. This is true. I'm not sending you a check, Kim. When the student is ready, the teacher will come, right? Even as much healing work as I've done, right? Like there's still some stuff, right? Absolutely. I mean, I can say some things are healed and some things are still being worked on. Adrian was going to say something. Go ahead, Adrian. I want to mute your mic, but go ahead. I'm going (laughs) to let you talk. (laughs) So I'm just working this out because you were saying for me that the way I see what I see is because I sit between my dad and my daughter. But I think a lot of this for me started getting worked out before Petal got here. Mm. And it was in therapy Mm -hmm. talking about my parental stuff and my family of origin stuff and seminary and having to deal with all of those family systems theories and just having my mind expanded and exploded when you start thinking about the family as a web and how, you know, you pull on this thread and all of that stuff starts to vibrate. It was, it's one of the best learnings that I think is out there, family systems theory. Mm -hmm. But learning that stuff and then being so grateful that my father and my mother were still alive so that I could go back and say, hey, remember when y'all did? Mm -hmm. And my mom saying things like, girl, I don't remember what you're talking about. And, And where the child wisdom comes in or me having a child wisdom comes in is when I became my mother's age. And then I thought, oh my God, my mother had four children under the age of six within five years. 
and she was like 20 something and she was working full time. I was like, it's a wonder she didn't kill us. Mm -hmm. And that y'all got fed, right? (laughs) I got one child and I want to leave her under a bush and run away some days, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, Hagar. So then when you get to the point where you, you know, as a 20 year old in college, I'm thinking, oh, my parents, oh, my parents, and they didn't love me and my mother didn't. And then you go back and talk to them and they're like, I don't remember what you're talking about. I did the best that I could. I'm like, oh, that's a cop out, right? Oh, that's a cop out. My mother can't, my dad can't own, oh, they can't own their stuff. And then you go to therapy and then you get grown Mm -hmm. and then you start realizing my mother was probably half crazed out of her mind, Mm -hmm. sleep deprived, taking care of four children, Mm -hmm. trying to do a grad school program, working at the psychiatric hospital Mm -hmm. while my dad was starting a business. It is a wonder that she didn't farm us all out to foster care. (laughs) And then, right, you have a child and then you call her and you go, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And then praying thanksgiving to God that you got to say that while they were still alive. Amen. Hallelujah. So for my dad, my dad just turned 80 last week. And this is what I want to say about Jephthah. What I'm working out is, so, and I don't want to make the killing of JD metaphorical, but I think there's some killing that gets done to kids perhaps because parents are not are are stressed out of their minds. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's a piece of it. Mm-hmm. So the metaphorical killing that I could say, oh my dad killed me when he did this thing to me. Like he would put the newspaper up and I'm trying to pour out my heart and he's ignoring me. And that still triggers me to this day. He probably does not even remember that. But then thank God he's lived long enough that I then can go back and have that conversation with him and he can confess I have regrets. Hmm. I wish I had done it this way. So what I wonder about Jephthah is he didn't maybe get to live long enough. Like, I don't know, like if his daughter had survived, if he hadn't killed her, if they would have come around to a conversation where he would have said, baby girl, I messed up Hmm. or baby girl, I, I have regrets or baby girl, I did the best that I could. And it wasn't good enough. And it wasn't good enough. And I see now that it wasn't good enough. And I know I should have um, said, I love you more. My dad used to be really physical with us. We used to wrestle and he would um, like pick us up and sit us on top of the refrigerator, which seemed like we were like on a mountain and I would just scream. "Ah!" Um, And then there was a day when he stopped touching us. And I remember asking him about that. He, and he was like, well, I just didn't want there to be any, you know, I just didn't want you all, you know, for there to be any um, misperceptions. And I was like, but you, like, no hugs, no kisses. And I remember saying to Petal's dad, don't do that to her. There is a, you can figure it out. There is a way that you can hug your daughter, like all through her growing up and not be worried that she, that." You know, she thinks you're trying to, you know what I'm saying? Um, those are regrets. So I wonder what happened. Mm-hmm. So a- again, we ask that question, what's wrong or what's this, rather than what happened? What happened to him in that, mi- in, in, in that time where he was doing one thing and then all of a sudden he stopped? What happened in his world? What was he responding to? So my cousin also moved in with us. Okay. Um, and, and lived like our sister. And he never punished her. Like he never would like, t- he said, I didn't lay a hand on her because I didn't want there to be any accusations that I had done anything. But I think he also did that with us. And that was kind of heartbreaking. I think it was heartbreaking to him as well, but I think he just didn't know what else to do. Sure. So being able to have all those conversations with my dad, 
to stop trusting the narrative I had made up in my head, which I think kids do. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, he stopped hugging us because he doesn't love us or he doesn't love us because he's never home. And to say, so what was up with that? And for him to say, I just was doing what I thought I was supposed to do. I was making sure everyone was taken care of. You know, I paid for all the stuff you needed. And now his lament is, I'm just the dude who paid the bills. And to know that that's his story of himself or the story that he thinks we have of him, it just explains a lot of things. So it complicates Jephthah. Mm -hmm. It complicates daddies. And parenting. It does. And what I hear is, you know, what I often say that we in, in these explanations, right, we're, we're explaining, we're not excusing behavior, right. but it is explaining behavior. And we don't always have our father's stories to make sense of their behavior. To Dion's question, what happened? You may never know the answer to that question specifically, right? But we look at our parents' lives and say, what happened? That's an essential question. And I think there's the what happened in the house, but then there's the what happened in the larger context. Right. So I think, you know, again, about my grandfather, who was so wonderful and loving and, you know, who came from the mountains of Virginia and and, you know, he and my grandmother, I think, probably fell in love around education because they thought, you know, go to school, go to school, go to school, teach at school, be in school, send your children to school, 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 school. Right. So I think that was their heart right there. But but he came from the mountains of Virginia, like the lynching history up there. As I now, as a grown person, look back, I'm like, oh my God. And he had, it was uh, four brothers. And, you know, there's a story because he, he supposedly walked from the mountains to Hampton to go to school. It's a, you know, it's a family story, but what was he leaving? Right. Like, so, so I won't even, I'll never know what happened to, to I, I know the result of it. And I know he's an icon of love in my mind, but why on earth would you walk from the mountains to the beach, basically, <laughs> in Virginia? I mean, school is good, but really? You know, that's a long way. So, so what happened? Did somebody get lynched out there? Did somebody try to take, you know, did somebody attack? Was there violence? What was, so the, the what happened in the complexity of the racist society that we live in is always so much more than even we could ever imagine. One of the myriad reasons that I love my sisters is because of what we do. Challenge each other and hold each other. Hold compassionate space for one another as we move to deeper and clearer levels of both our own truth and our own healing. They challenge me and they keep me honest. Two overarching threads that we can pull from my sister circle conversation are one, the value in knowing our parents' story, and two, how adulthood, particularly parenthood, can give wounded children clarity and perspective to understand and explain, not excuse, their parents' behavior. If you are blessed enough to have living parents and want to begin or have begun your own healing work, I encourage you to have compassionately courageous conversations with your parent. It may very well end up being healing for both of you. For some of you, this may not be possible. It may feel a bit too risky. It may still feel unsafe to do so. To that end, I want to invite you to listen in on my conversation with a parent, a father. A few weeks ago, I spoke to a dear friend, the Reverend Leander Hardaway, about the podcast. After listening to a few episodes of Healing Jephthah's Daughters, Leander called me and said, you know, 
I'm Jephthah to my oldest daughter. At the end of that conversation, I asked Leander to join me for today's episode, and he agreed. Leander is a father to three daughters, a husband, and a minister. He is an attorney and a mitigation expert for the National Death Penalty Project. He is also a faith-based organization liaison for the Amateur Athletic Union. He's been a good friend for about two decades and a companion on my own healing journey. Listen in to someone who identifies as Jephthah in his own story. Hello, twin. Hello, twin. Good to see you. <laughs> it's good to see you. And I'm, I'm honored to be here today on your podcast. Let's get into it. So tell me your feeling about the story. Um, It hit me in a number of ways, but uh, most profoundly is, is that I have three daughters and um, being relatively transparent, I have one daughter that doesn't talk to me. She's 32 now. And uh, it's painful. When I listened to the text and uh, some of the discussions, it brought up something in me um, that made me think about things in a, in a different way. And so what happens is I've become uh, kind of enamored with the idea of seeing where I fit in. It's easy to say how other people fit, but it's not as easy to see how you fit. Mm. So I'm really focused on what this means because. Um, Probably at some point during this journey, I can reconnect or at least try to reconnect with my daughter. Mm. It's, it's, it's easier to look back as as a preacher or this or that and say, hey, I see you. But it's, it's more important for me to see myself. And as I see myself, I'm hoping that at some point I can have a, a uh, reconnection with my daughter and we can have like a discussion where we can really lay some things bare that we've never laid bare before and um, hoping to prevent anything with my other two daughters. And what's interesting is when I did this workshop in the Bronx, that was the first time men got put on my radar regarding this work. Reverend Dr. Zoleka Adams, who's the assistant pastor of Mount Carmel Baptist Church in the Bronx, told me that there was a man who wanted to attend. I never thought about men as attendees because it was healing Jephthah's daughters. However, he said to her, my daughter doesn't speak to me and I'd like to understand why. And so she told me his story and it was clear to me why his daughter wasn't speaking to him. He and his wife divorced. He remarried and had another child, a daughter, and they lived in the same neighborhood. And so this daughter grew up seeing her father with his new wife and another daughter who was not her. And she struggled about why he wasn't a father to her. And it was at that point that I realized that there are many lenses, many entry points on this story. Like I know my concern was out of my own location and context, but that men were interested as well, fathers particularly, of girls especially. And for me, it was interesting because it was so clear to me why his daughter didn't speak to him, but he didn't understand. Leander, 
What did your relationship with your father teach you about relating to your children, especially your daughters? I don't really hold any grudges against my father. I'm not angry. I mean, I know he he was born in 1920. And a black man in 1920, it's like, you know, my thing is this. I can can understand things. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm complicit with it, but I can understand things. Okay. Um, I've never seen anybody lynched from a tree before. Okay. Um, But here's the thing. Uh, I I said to myself, I was never going to be like my father. Mm. You wake up after 63 years and you realize, given to you, notwithstanding the degrees and this and that, (laughs) <laughs> principally the same man mm. 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 and so there's a there's a part of me wow and somebody told me this a long time ago this was a a, a, a gentleman named Dr. Jeffrey Howard uh, he created an organization called the Efficacy Institute in Lexington, Massachusetts um, psychologist he told me because I was working for him as a trainer going around the country Mm-hmm. But he told me that my emotional self had not caught up to my intellectual self. Mm. Ooh. Yeah. And it wasn't, I mean, it was, he was driving me to the airport, man. And he just made the comment and it was like, wow. You know, a, a, a message doesn't have to be loud to be profound. Sure. And that stayed with me for about like 15, 20 years now. Mm. But that whole thing there is like, while I was working on various things, the things that I should have been working on or could have been working on, I didn't work on. But, you know, I, I got to just say, hey, I didn't know. That's why stuff like this is great, because I didn't know. I didn't know I was, I didn't know that what I was going to do would have a direct impact on any of my kids, let alone just my daughter. Absolutely. And, and had I known that, not just intellectually, but more so, spiritually and emotionally, I, I, I would have at least stopped and tried to, to turn things around. Sure, sure. And, and we don't know what we don't know, right? If we don't have a model or a teacher or someone to tell us, we don't know what we don't know. That's number one. The second thing is there is a way in which children who are neglected, abused in many and all of its forms there's a way that they develop these compensatory schemas, I call them, right? There's a way in which when children are trying to manage emotions, those emotions, that energy gets rerouted, right? You become, you know, bookworms, you become academic overachievers, you become athletes, you throw yourself into things. And if they don't have the benefit of therapy and reflection and a guide, a, a therapist, a spiritual director, someone to help them, they grow into adults. I, I call it the oholic syndrome, right? Workaholic, schoolaholic, sportsaholic, you know, could be, you know, alcoholic, spendaholic, right? That, that there's these ways in which that energy gets diverted, right? Because the pain, the wound that is deep has not been addressed because there's been no one there to guide them through it. If we we're taught to manage and engage emotions, right? If we were taught how to modulate, how to manage and balance, we wouldn't go through these extremes. Um, but you don't know what you don't know. And oftentimes 
we learn through our experiences and then can look back and paint more accurate pictures and as adults apply more accurate language to our situations, our contexts. That's very powerful because I've done workshops with brothers and, you know, I always start with, how you doing? Mm-hmm. And that's like a trick question. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, I'm all right. <laughs> you know, and, and that's, and, and what happens is you, I have to ask that question like 15 to 20 times and then they start cussing and in the cussing, they're saying how they really feel now. Absolutely. And that's the whole thing that you're talking about. Um, nobody gives us language and nobody gives men the language so if you don't have the language if you never learn the language as a as a child you can't really put into real perspective how you feel and you really can't decode what's being said or felt by your daughter or whoever else it is so the, so that 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 chasm there never gets filled until umpteen years later, if you got a therapist or you're watching, you're you're you're, you're listening to this podcast, or and, and and if you're not, maybe you never find the language. You just kind of exist in a vacuum. I have a question for you that someone asked. They said, if you could be in conversation with Jephthah before he killed his daughter. What would you say to him? Um, how does it feel to be a man? Say more. Um, you know, the text doesn't tell us a whole lot about him, you know, and, um, just who he is because who he is okay, at his essence, triggered his response to his daughter and everything mm-hmm. around him. And when I look at, you know, like when I, when, I, when I review just a few words of the text, I see myself as him, okay? You know, it's, it's, it's you know, there's different kinds of murder. You know, there's emotional murder, there's physical murder. So, but what happens if you don't know, everybody's capable of a, a certain kind of killing, okay, at any point in time. And to understand that, I mean, maybe that's why the scripture is written that way. It, it forces us to, to grapple with that, you know, uh, irrespective of what time period we're in, to deal with that. But um, for me to understand who he was as a man, you know, what 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 what, what is his relationship with women you know but you know my thing is this sometimes as much as i love my mother uh i wonder if some of the things i do are not a reaction to just being raised by a woman here's the thing that i think a lot of times that people don't understand you hear people say uh, you hear women say i'm a mother and a father well no you're not and while you are handling everything that doesn't make you the father that makes you the mother and you're dealing with the absence of the father. There are certain things that my mother did, okay, and we never really had a chance to really, like, really talk about these things. But I'm like, you know, is she reacting to her love for my father and, and the, the void that was left in when my man, when, 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 when my father left? 
or is this just who she is? So there's a lot of questions that are unanswered. But um, I need to I, I, I need to understand what was going on with that because um, I just don't know. And at this age, I'm probably not going to get those answers because both of my parents are gone. So I have to I have to figure out a paradigm that allows me to to put this stuff together. There are many lenses through which to view this story. And the reality is many of our fathers, uncles, brothers, nephews, cousins, and friends see themselves in this story as well. In a similar way, each of you listening may see yourselves in this story. Not all of you may identify as Jephthah's daughter. Some of you may actually identify with Jephthah, no matter your gender identity. Children do not always get to know their parents' stories. Parents were also once children, too. Children don't always get to know about their parents' childhood, their relationship and experiences that they had with their own parents. Children may hear of events, and it is through those events that children often have pieces and stitch together the depths of their parents' stories. The extent to which children know their parents' stories helps to shed light on their parents' beliefs and behaviors, and possibly their own pain and wounds caused by their parents. Some adults are fortunate enough to not only have living parents, but to have enough active relationship to have conversations with their parents about their childhood, to ask them questions, recount events, and interrogate those events with the living parents and have conversations about it. Sometimes clarifying conversations about what parents' intentions were and what the adult child, as a child, experienced. And for those who are not able to have conversations with your parents for whatever reason, either because you are not in active relationship with your parents, your parents are deceased, or you don't know your parents, There are ways to do healing work around childhood wounds and trauma. A trained, licensed mental health professional can work with you using the best therapeutic approach for you and help you along your healing journey. Adulthood not only gives chronological distance from childhood trauma, it also provides a level of emotional maturity and language to identify, name, and explore the trauma and experiences that children, as children, do not have the ability to articulate, explain, or process. A child does not have the psychological capacity, emotional maturity, or language skills to name and explain their trauma. They only know, experientially, that they are hurting. They are often subconsciously trying to stop hurting and satisfy the wounding parent at the same time. That's a lot for a child to have to live and endure. Adulthood gives the adult child some spaces and capacities to talk, process, and heal from the wounds they carry. And when the adult children themselves become parents, there is even greater clarity, understanding, and sometimes pain that comes when they can look in their own rearview mirror, even as they are looking at their own children to understand their experiences, tend to their wounds, and heal. What rich and weighty conversations. We have heard from children, 
and parents, one male, some females, adult children who are now themselves parents, adult children who have and in some ways are parenting aging parents. The blessing of adulthood is clarity and language and maturity and wisdom and sometimes even compassion for our parents and ourselves. And with that comes or should come different questions. Ask yourself, how much of my parents' story do I know? In what ways can I draw a line from my parents' story to my own? How does what I know about their childhood shed light on how I was parented? For parents, how much of my parenting is informed by my own childhood? Do I treat my children as I was treated? Am I doing the complete opposite? Or am I doing something in between? In what ways can you understand your parents' story differently? In what ways can you explain, not excuse, their behavior? To be compassionately courageous about raising tough questions and having hard conversations. To be compassionate towards yourself for things you may have done or not done as you were working through your own pain. These are weighty questions and pain is weighty. And the remedy, the healing, is neither quick nor easy nor light. Take your time with these questions. Ruminate over them. Journal about them. Reflect in whatever way works for you. It's your journey. And in your journeying, take care of you. As always, my prayer for you is freedom, healing, and wholeness. Healing Jephthah's Daughters is part of the Theolab Media Podcast Network. Theolab is a collective of humans committed to a more candid dialogue about spirituality, culture, and the world. Visit theolabmedia.com to learn more.